Club members, I'm Jen Bozier. And I'm Carrie. And this is Warhammer 40k Book Club, where we read from a crag. This is episode number 37, and we're talking about Dawn of Fire, The Avenging Sun by Guy Haley. The book takes place at the beginning of the Andromedus Crusade, shortly after Gulliman has awakened and visited Terra and spoken with his father. We posted, we posted several questions on our website, wh40kbookclub.com, and we encourage participation in our discussion via Twitter, YouTube, our site, or Encrypted Vox channel. Spoiler warning, if you haven't yet read this book, go to the site, check out the book and the questions, and come back to this episode as we'll be talking about this book in great detail from start to finish. As always, let's kick off with, no. did you like the book? I don't want to start off with this question. <laughs> No. I did not either. No. No. Okay, so... Are, are we, we, we going to just take a skip on this question? Okay, so I'll just say this one thing. So if you guys want to know the real truth of why we postponed recording this for so long, it was because this book... It was took us both a long time to read, and it wasn't because we were so busy. It was because I... We both literally would fall asleep while reading. Like normally when I, I usually read before I go to bed and I usually get in between 50 and 70 pages before I go to bed. You guys, I'd read about 10 or 20 and I'd be out. I, I had a lot of trouble focusing on this book. And so I think the best description I gave of this book was... If you've ever watched the first episode of season three or season four, probably more like season four or five of a show, the first episode of season four has like a five minute recap where they go back through seasons one through four and they grab all of the very important pertinent details from all of those seasons to remind you that previously in the Imperium, that's what this book felt like. It felt like they grabbed all these important pertinent threads from all these other books that we've already read and he pulled it together to remind you like what was relevant, what was important and what you need to remember going forward into Indomitus. I have decided definitively this book was not for us. This book feels to me like something for somebody who doesn't read every black library book and maybe hasn't read Belisarius call or watchers of the throne or dark Imperium or Volsantara. Vaults of Terra, thank you. So, some of this information might have been or, very new. Or Lords of Silence. Or Lords of Silence. So, although, we'll get back to that in a second. Um, it felt very much like for people, they were trying to get in people who maybe purchased an Indomitus box and want to get started. Is it, it You, by the way, I hate you, but you were unfortunately correct. It kind of feels like a DC reboot. I was like, well, what did I... T I'm going to wait for the accusation here. Yes, I um, did call it a DC reboot. And if anyone reads DC comics and has gone through the pains of just in the last five years of how many reboots DC has tried to do with itself, first like with the new 52 and then Rebirth and now whatever the hell is about to happen. Whatever with, they're doing with, right uh, now. Dark Knight's Death Metal. Um, oh, I forgot in between there, there was the whole source wall breaking or something. I, I was going to say, are we, are we not going to, are, are we not talking about that now? Have we erased it from our memory? Oh, right. Yeah. The magical oh, doorknobs. I, 
magical doorknobs and let's not forget about when all magic died let's not forget about that yeah but i think that's all been fixed i'm sure it has somehow because dc it it really does feel as though oops we accidentally jumped ahead a hundred years so let's go back but now let's start over again and you know what I think I've decided my biggest complaint with about this book was, other than it was a summary of the rest of those books? This, there were no stakes in this book. The stakes were basically zero. Because we know we know they don't open the rift up into Terra. We know that doesn't happen. We know that nothing happens to Gulliman. Um, the right. stakes were very, very low. I mean, and unless they're going to retcon Dark Imperium which will make me very unhappy. Um, at this point, like I'm fearful for this series that I'm not going to learn anything new because, and not just, you know, because of Watchers of the Throne of Vaults of Terra, because this book covered most of the juicy bits of that because that takes place <laughs> right as the rift opens. Um, but I'm just, I'm thinking more of like Dark Imperium, Devastation of Ball. All these others where we already know the state of the Imperium a hundred years into the future from this point. If we don't get a third Dark Imperium book because they're writing this nonsense, it's not nonsense. I, I say nonsense. I say that in a silly manner, but I, I've made it very, I, th I think on this podcast several times, I don't like prequels. I am willing to accept so much at face value. If you tell me, hey, when the Primaris were introduced, people kind of thought Gullen was making a weird power play, I will go, seems legit. Right. You know, um, if you tell me, well, they were going to try and open the rift and bring it all the way up to Terra, but an Inquisitor stopped them, I'd be like, cool. I, I don't need to see it. I, I really don't need to see what happened in those hundred years. I don't like prequels. Again, because the... The stakes are so low. I know where we get in a hundred years. And and so much of this too. So the parts that stood out to me in this book, there were some good parts that stood out to me. But some of it, a lot of it was me going, I know. Like there's the conversation yeah. he has with Primus. That's a really good one where... But yeah. that was a repeat. I was like, oh my god, I've already had this conversation, but it was just with Felix instead of Messinius. Exactly. Now, I don't know if he was trying to let us know that, look, Primus has been preaching this message to anyone who will listen for this long. But we already have a supposition about what Primus is, and this book pretty much just rehashed that thing to give you the supposition that you already had. Right. Um, and then the whole thing where he talks about how mm, Call might not be entirely trustworthy, not because he's a traitor, but because he's arrogant. Yeah, I read Belisarius Call. I agree with you. Well, not only that. I already read a whole book about this. But even before Belisarius Call, we read Dark Imperium. <laughs> and, you know, even before he talks, Gulliman talks to the rogue AI that is not an AI. No, definitely not an AI. We already got ideas that Call was not someone to entirely trust. And again, not because of anything that he's done. Not because like not because he's evil. No. Because he's arrogant. He's arrogant and he plows ahead. He asks he think he does and then asks questions later. Right. 
an act. God, I cannot think of the word act. Like, I forgot the word act exists for a minute. <laughs> yes. Um, he, he, I, he doesn't think before he acts. Not at all. He just, and he he's, also, uh, he's the Jurassic Park argument. Just he also good doesn't mean he thought if he should. Right. But he's, he also acts in, in that he thinks he is so smart. I mean, not that he's not smart, but he believes that he is so smart that everyone should just automatically go along with what he's doing, no matter what it is. Which is very what we much saw so. in Belisarius' call. Very much so. And again, we saw this already. And frankly, I'm at the point now with, with this book, I would almost, again, to relate it to comics. So if you've ever read comic books and like Storm and Cyclops are talking and suddenly they're like, well, do you remember that one time that Wolverine did this? And there's a little asterisk and then it says, see, issue this. Which, to be fair, with the X-Men comics is more of a threat than a suggestion. But <laughs> I really, there were things in this where I felt like he could have just said in the little asterisk at the bottom, Steve Elisaria's call. There could have been so many footnotes in here. Seriously. But then oddly enough, and this stood out to me too, to your point, we read Lords of Silence, so we know what happened to the White Consul's homeworld. Right. They, don't, they surprisingly don't go into a ton of detail on this. The only thing that I liked about it was that I was like, oh, so now we do, like, we kind of already knew when Lords of Silence took place, but it pretty much, now right. it's definitive when Lords of Silence takes place. Right. I, you guys, I just don't know. I, there were so many things that I was like, and I did like, and that's something that did stick out to me. Like, I loved when they talked about Jack coming and giving them information. And I was like, I, I know, we know Jack. And when they talked about how, well, it's really weird that we didn't get that guy valerian yeah we know why he didn't get valerian so i love that kind of stuff right but i don't you know my other complaint book could have been about 150 pages less shorter at least maybe 200 i'd say 150 there was there was a lot where i was just like why I mean, and I could see the plot plot, and it's probably just because, because we have a friend who did read this book, and he thought it was great, but he hasn't read all the books that Jen and I have read, so she and I were both like, dude, we know all this, there's no new information, but it was new, a lot of it was new to him, because I think he'd only read Dark Imperium, I think it might be the only one, and, and I, as in the, the first book. So a lot of it was new and probably very greatly appreciated. So like as Jen said at the very beginning, this book was probably not meant for us. This book might have been really good for those who are like, I want to jump into this, but I don't want to read 50 books. And they're like, let us help you. Yes. But because usually... I would say that he does enough of a recap that, like, in some of the stuff that references other books that he doesn't go into detail about, like Sabatine being destroyed, or who the hell this Jack lady is, or why this Valerian guy isn't there. Do you need to have read those other books? No, not really, to have followed along with this book. It is kind of nice. Right. But I actually, I actually have the opposite, where I'm like, just go read those books. And the other thing that really bothered me about this book as it says below, uh, 
it was Reboot Exposition Man. Like, every time they talked to Reboot, it reminded me of that scene in Wayne's World where Alice Cooper starts explaining the history of Milwaukee. <laughs> Just like everybody talks to him and he's like, that's right, Chad. Let me tell you a little bit about this history. And he just, like, so much exposition. And maybe that's why Gulliman's a man of few words later in the Dark Imperium books. Because he's like, I'm done. I have explained everything to you people that I'm explaining. Go ask that guy if you want to know. I'm done. I was not. I didn't like that. Rehash exposition, man. Okay. That didn't bother me as much because... Pretty much, I'm just like, Gulliman's talking. That's cool. But for me... Oh, you. I know, I know. I'm a, it, it, it is a problem. But at, the same, but at the same time, I mean, you know, when he's talking about certain other things, I'm like, yes, I already know this. Because really, the thing with Primus is one that probably annoyed me the most. I'm like, oh my god, I've read this conversation before. And then every time Missinius was going into that time that my planet is gone, I'm like, dude, we know. Okay? You got it, dude. At this point, you're reminding me of Snow from Final Fantasy Thirteen, who I kicked out of my party because he kept saying, this is the last tear that Sarah will ever cry. Oh, shut up, man. Actually, and you know, okay, so anybody who knows me in my Mass Effect history, I love the Krogan, Rex, and Grunt. Like, I'm still angry I couldn't romance Grunt. I loved Rex from the first game. Oh, yeah. But if Rex mentioned one more time that the Krogan couldn't have children, we were going to have to have a talking. And uh, that, that's actually, so that's what Mycenaeus reminded me of in this, is I kept thinking, yes, Rex, we know. See, and, every, and, and seeing Rex was always in my party. My party Mine was too. Rex and Garrus. That's mm-hmm. really all you needed in the first Mass Effect game. It was just those two. Pretty much. And in the second game, it was almost always uh, Grunt and Garrus. <laughs> I, I stick with a theme. I don't. I know Garrus was in mine. I don't remember who I always had. It might have been... No, it wasn't Tali. Because I, I was an engineer. I didn't need Tali. Anyway, it doesn't right. matter. Um... <laughs> sidetracking here um no i never really noticed that before that he always said that but it doesn't surprise me at the same time like again with final fantasy 13 a friend of mine snow was her favorite character because he was so romantic and not letting it go i guess you could describe that with Mycenaeus. i i understand that has to suck like you guys extended your reach a little too much trying to emulate gulliman the Death Guard showed up. And it's not even just like, it's not like a bunch of corn worshippers showed up and just killed the planet. It's a plague world now. <laughs> right? I mean, look, I love the Death Guard. I loved Lords of Silence. But I'm going to be honest and say that, like, in terms of having your home planet taken over by one of the Chaos Gods, that's probably one of the worst. Right. Because it's just disgusting. So, sorry, Betty. But it's even worse. On the other hand, they got didn't, it. They didn't even target the White Consuls. It was just a happy coincidence. It was just there. Like, no. oh, wait. Isn't that an Adeptus Astartes world? Grab it. We want that. <laughs> I mean, technically, it's still an Adeptus Astartes world, just not in the way you mean. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, okay. Let's let's break it down, like, kind of beginning to end. So, one of the things that I found the most interesting in this book, uh, as, again, very interesting, a little long-winded, 
was the Primaris introduction. So let's talk first about that. So the way that they get revealed to people. How did you feel about that? A little too grandiose for my taste. But as Gollum even said, he's like, Call likes to put on his shows. So let's just grin and bear it. And then Gollum was playing his part. And I did, I did like when Messinius was like, Gulliman would never have done this. And Primus was like, I don't notice. I don't, I don't see him stopping it. Because he knows, oh. because again, he is the master politician and he knows what part he needs to play. Very much so. That's all Very part, probably so. one thing I really liked in this book. Something that they really pointed out. And it's probably the one part in Primus conversation that I liked was when they, they pointed out multiple times that Gulliman is constantly thinking 10 steps ahead of where everybody else is. I mean, if you've read the second Watchers of the Throne book, you know he actually thinks like a thousand steps ahead of everybody else. But just the constant, always ahead of everyone and knowing where to go, what to say, what to do to make everybody happy. I mean, God, that's a fucking gift, man. Well, it's not just that. It's that he, not only is he thinking 10 steps ahead, he is so aware, so keenly aware of appearance. I have to appear to be kind of nonplussed by this. Because he's the master politician. I mean, it just goes back to, you know, him being raised by uh, one of the last battle kings of McCrag. That's just kind of part of it. He's always been master politician. I mean, to be honest... As far as we're going to get go down through uh, the different abilities of the emperor that was spread out to his sons, I mean, forget that Gulliman has is the best offensive strategist. He's the master politician, and that's almost a strategy in of its own right. Yeah. Oh, there's a whole bunch. I mean, you there's an entire job in our world that are just political strategists. That's right. all they do. And he, not only is he, he really is like the perfect son um obviously he has his weaknesses he definitely does yes but i liked when primus was like yeah he's basically the masterwork he is this perfect thing but i loved that he was very much aware that i can't just show up and have a whole new army so i have to make this be like belisarius call is presenting this to me and i really am kind of like oh yeah that um which oh yeah i forgot i you know he wasn't right i forgot i put that in place 10,000 years ago. And even though he's kind of impressed and kind of, you get the impression that he is a little awed by it. He's still kind of like, cool. That's very nice. Thank you. Can you show me the next stuff? And like, he was just very, again, thinking 10 steps ahead. Very much. And, but I just found it to be so, I guess now that you say grandiose, it was very Collian. It was gaudy. It was, very, it was gaudy. Yeah, it was tacky. I felt so bad for the guys they were killing. It's like, dude, you just got killed to prove a point. Well, they were, weren't they attacking each other? I mean, it was just... They were attacking each other and those hyper, hyper violent uh, uh, combat droids. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, and they yeah. had them like super violent. And it's like... Like I agreed it's with such a waste. I agreed with Messinius when he said, "What a waste of life!" And Primus was like, "But is it though?" I mean, okay, from a political standpoint, okay, I kind of see that because we got to go with the show. The show must go on, but at the same time, right. yes, it's a waste. Very much so. I, 
I didn't really love that. I did. I liked when they revealed all the legions when he turns the lights up and that, it's like, oh gosh. For some reason, like I know this actually didn't happen in the movie, but um, Iron Man two at Tony's expo. That's kind of what it reminded me of. Like you just imagine at the expo something like that. Yes, very much so. It actually that's a that's an interesting way to word it because Call definitely has a little bit of that showmanship that. I don't, much like Iron Man and Tony, I don't think he does anything subtle. No. Because he's, again, he's the smartest man in the room. Ask him, he'll tell you. (laughs) Um, So let's talk a little bit about um, the Primaris's awakening experience. So they kind of dealt with that a little bit in... um, in Belisarius Call, we got to see a little bit, well, not really the awakening experience. Felix really delved more into the, the, um, <laughs> trying to let my cat out of the room here. She's fine. Um, he delved a little bit into what it was like to be made, but less about, like, what it was like waking up. That scene in which Arius starts waking up. Mm-hmm. That was scary. Yeah. No, like I... when he talks about the cold and it just sounded so awful. And the fact that they brought that back, because as I said, this is like a season recap. Here's what was all important. The fact that they bring up that. I don't know if it's to remind you that, look, this was not an easy experience. So the primaries are very difficult to make. It takes a very long time. These aren't something that like... He has like 10,000 of them, but we're not going to be able to just like start stamping out copies of them per se. Or if that's going to become very plot relevant, like in the overarching plot of the Warhammer 40k world. Well, and I'm kind of curious in something that was mentioned in uh, Blood of Ix, of all books. <laughs> but one thing that one of the twins mentioned was that they, as they even said, we were not one of calls that born. So I'm like, okay, what right. does that mean? Are they like tapping into Fabius Bile now and are just creating life? Well, I think that was, I think maybe he did actually create, like, yeah, he probably took like embryos, I guess, and grew them up rather than just taking children. Mm-hmm. Because that was the, that was what we got, I got out of that. And they mentioned that again in another book another book mentioned not being bat born i can't remember which one it was but that was my take was that it was kind of like an embryo that he kind of grew up whereas these were just children which i don't know if that makes it better or worse well when arius was kind of just he was talking about how he didn't remember you know anything but he is like these fleeting moments it's like this is halo i'm not saying that warhammer is copying halo but is that same idea of these kids just went missing and the parents said you talk about parents who are mourning their children have no idea they were kidnapped for some government project right i don't think that happens here because like remember with um felix mentions like his parents knew he was going off to become a space marine right but i don't think they just didn't know in ten thousand years 
Right. I don't think Aries' parents knew this because he mentioned being kidnapped. He does, but I think it was more... And they do that kind of in some of the Hive worlds. There's another short story. I can't think of the name of it. I literally like just read this, too. Where there's a monster hunting through the hives. And these children, they're running away because there's a monster and they're very scared of them. It's a space marine and he's hunting for recruits. And basically what he does is he hunts them through the hive and the ones who can outsmart him. Or, you know, right. outsmart. But the ones who are the, proved to be the wiliest and the cleverest go with him. Interesting. And it was really interesting. So I don't know, like, if in the hive world where they're just like, these people probably have, like, eight kids and can't even remember the name of this one. So, yoink. Whereas if you're from one of the houses, like, on Calth or McCrag, your third son's coming to be a space marine. Cool. In 10,000 years. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. It, it was very... It made me feel a little sad for them. Because when he's kind of like, there are no gods. Or like when he was talking about the... Um, they were talking about the worship of the emperor. Right. That I found was very interesting. And how Mycenaeus kept mentioning, this is not the world that you woke up in or that you went to sleep in. Oh, exactly. I got to find this one quote because I wrote it down. Oh, uh, I had one about that too. It's on page 400 because it's on the super spiffy edition. Near the end, it's Arreus. The galaxy he had awoken to was insane. And I actually wrote in there, that's yep. the understatement of the year. Yes. Or the millennia, I should say. Can you imagine? Imagine for a moment. Like, just the idea of you go to sleep, you're in a hive, you were in mm -hmm. a hive, you wake up throughout the years, it's cold, it's painful, there's the nutty professor, like, in your face and telling you he's going to make you better. <laughs> and okay. I love that, but continue. He was at Belisarius Call, he totally was. But that you have this going on, and then the very next thing you know... You were on a coronate sh ship. What? Like, I think, and they talked about that with Rostov. They talked about that with Lacrant. How he's like, why are you grabbing me? Not many people face down a coronate berserker. It's scary. It's terrifying. <laughs> like, I also laughed at that because I was like, oh, poor Arius. You're having like the worst Monday ever. It's like, <laughs> It was like the grimdark version of that movie, Training Day. Oh, God. Yes, he is having like, the worst day ever. Yeah. Like, this is a terrible, no good, rotten day. Just because... And I liked that he was very, like... Okay. What next? Because <laughs> he's a space marine. But... I just felt so bad for him. As soon as they got into the, the Blood King, it's like, oh, man. That's a rough day. Yeah, he was pretty much, like... This is not what I thought was going to happen. <laughs> and they spent... And Gullivan's again. probably like, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll drink to that, bro. <laughs> uh, and again, they spent a lot of time on that. And I don't know... Part of me would be like, oh, well, it was semi-interesting and it made for good filler. But this is not the first book that Gee Haley has dealt with this. So... I, 
I do wonder if that's going to become a major plot point is that some of these guys are just discombobulated and some of them are just really none too happy about the things that happened to them. Right. And I mean, maybe, probably, which will kind of go back into, can we trust these primaris, you know, versus mm-hmm. the space Marines that undergo the Calgarian rites, you know, who, right. You know, uh, who's a little more trustworthy here? Those who have grown up in where we are or those who went to sleep 10,000 years ago and were just like, what the fuck? Like, right. This did, is not did necessarily. You guys, did you guys like really not like how things were? <laughs> yeah. Well, and all I can think of is it, it, it's kind of as Primus said with them is that, look, it, it, we've dealt with this a lot. Who are these guys loyal to? Bellman? Call? It, are they loyal? Are they loyal, but like just because of some of the flaws that are inherent in them? That, yeah, I don't know. I, I really don't know the answer to that, but it's very interesting that we keep coming back to this. So, actually, what I was going to say is like, I think one reason why he kind of harps on that here is for a couple of reasons. One, you know, that meme of Gulliman. Man wakes up with fresh hatred. Fresh renewed hatred for job. job. Yeah. I mean, just Seriously. kind of like reemphasizing that whole thing. Whether he knows about that meme or not, that is what Gullman has awoken to. Because he says multiple times in this book, as well as uh, Watches of the Throne, I don't understand the world I have woken up into, but I know how to fix it. <laughs> um. So I think it's just kind of refreshing with that and coupled with some of the other things that were going on, especially the deep looks into the administratum with both Fabian and Nara. So it that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about. Really emphasizing this place sucks. <laughs> just in case you thought it would be awesome. It's not awesome. Everything in the Imperium sucks. Nothing works the way it's supposed to supposed to. But let me show you like how bad administratum stuff is by how let's look at behind the scenes with fabian where he's writing a diary in secret because thinking is bad it's like well it's not just thinking it's that he's recording history and history is bad i don't and see of course i don't get why history is bad i guess well it's because the inquisition wants to control what's remembered so like yesterday uh, these two guys got into a fight on my balcony over some weird book. So I recorded that. But the Inquisition wants to be like, there was no book. There was no fight. What are you talking about? Okay. They want to be able to control everything. So that's why the history is bad. And more importantly, in this world, if you're thinking about writing history, you're really not thinking about your job. And we need you to be 100% focused on your job. I mean, when they really talked about, like with Nara especially, you wake up, you eat, you go to work, you eat, you come home, and you sleep. And that's it. That's your that's your day until you burn out. You're like a battery. Right. Because I mean, because I wrote down, you know, for Fabian, I wrote down notes about, you know, about curiosity and free thinking being crimes. Because he even talked about being curious is a sign of heresy. I was just like, wow, this is the Inquisition. Okay, okay. I knew the Inquisition was really big on controlling the message and actually that's one thing i thought here i was like oh my god this is statecraft if, it you, is. Guys, if it, you guys have seen chernobyl you know exactly what i'm talking about with statecraft but the it is curiosity it's, it's and free thinking 
I didn't realize the Inquisition was... I knew they were bad. I didn't know they had gone as far as thinking on your own is heresy because that's just batshit crazy. And then I write then later on page, you know, page 88 with Nara when she's bringing that missive to her superior and he tells her thinking is bad for you. Well, that's it goes back to Dawn of War in the Dawn of War games. Um, Similar to like Starcraft, if you click on the little guys, they'll say things. And one of the things that got quoted most often was an empty mind is a pure mind. So it's, I mean, it's all the stuff of, and obviously I think the higher up below the echelon you can afford to, but again, these people are chattel. These people are batteries. We don't need you thinking. We don't need you asking questions because as soon as you start thinking and asking questions, you're going to start to wonder can I like have a break? Why am I doing this? Why this missive? You have to get through 10,000 missives today. We don't need you stopping and looking at this one. 500 clicks per minute. You need to... Right. It's, it also kind of goes concept. into... The other thing I liked that he was getting into this deep with Fabian and Nara was not only does this suck and you are just some paper pusher who's just mindlessly stamping things and not even understanding what you're doing. This is so inefficient. Fabian doesn't even get a missive until 50 years after it was sent. Yeah. And not only that, but to me, probably the more, the most concerning part was when Mara is going on her little mission here and they go into where they're burning vellum. And people fighting and killing over paper. Well, do you remember in... It actually... So the one thing I liked about that is that was a... I don't know if it was intentional or unintentional payoff. Do you remember in... I think it's in... I think it's in Vaults of Terra 2. I think it's the Hollow Mountain. Where he goes on this like five-page thing about how vellum is made. And how very rare this stuff is. And how difficult it is to get hold of it. And at the time, I was like, well, that's interesting, but it's a little dull. You could have wrapped this up in like one paragraph, but it was like five pages of it. It really paid off in this book. Because when they talked about killing over it, my first thought was, well, yeah, do you remember how it's made? And then I was like, oh, oh, (laughs) so it's like an interesting little payoff for me. It it does make a little bit of sense. I mean, because there's no trees on Terra. And vellum's very difficult. It's very price. It's very costly. It's very valuable. The scribes need it all the time. I mean, they talk about how much they need vellum and how much they write on it. And and yet, no one thinks of recycling it. That's just thing that blows my mind. That was. I had the same thought. I was like, so flip it over. Um. So let me ask you this: There were several little plot points that were introduced, and they kind of touched on them and did stuff with them. Nara specifically. And then in the end, like in the halfway point of her story, as soon as they tell her who she needs to go see, you know it's Fabian. And you're like, but wait, he's off planet. So you kind of know where her story is going. Nowhere. Exactly. Like, like her life was going nowhere. Right. So there was, there was a little dramatic irony there. But was that, I mean, it was interesting. But what's what was the... I don't know how to say this without sounding mean, but what was the point? Well, I kind of thought the same, too. And the only thing I can think of is the point was just showing how meaningless their lives are. Which we already kind of knew, though. Like, I, no, I, I was like, this, well, this is hammered interesting. 
this hammered at home. Just in case you were curious. Yeah. What is she going to do now? I don't think she her can dad, go back to her job. Her dad said, cannot, her dad said, don't her dad ever won't see take me her again. back. No. Nope. Right. Her dad won't take her back. The, um, she'll be killed if she goes back because she left. And I'm sure that guy's not going to be super happy about that. Uh, well, he already docked half an hour of sleep. Just like, oh my God. Right. And also, and more importantly, it's not like the Imperium is you were born into a family. You do this job. It's not like you can go job hunting. You can't get on LinkedIn and look for another job as a scribe. And unfortunately, unlike LeCrant, there is not always an Inquisitor to swoop in and be like, you're useful. Or in Fabian's case. A, a Primarch. Yes. Yeah, yeah, a whole Primarch. Which I, I have a big question about that with Fabian. Hmm. How does he know about him? Um, I thought they covered that in the beginning. I'm trying to remember. Thought, he talks about like discovering about the histories and stuff. I mean, I'm sure I reread being... that and I just like, okay, I understand. Like, I know you're looking for people who are willing to do this. How did you know? Because if you knew he was hiding this book and doing this, how did other people not know? So do you remember in Dark Imperium, there was that woman who went down and hunted down the Lectis, the Lectisio yes, yes. Divinatus? Mm-hmm. I mean, I strongly suspect it's like that. Like, I'm sure he, ha- I'm sure, no doubt, he has basically headhunters. I want you to go and find me people of use. And these people have ways and are good. And I have no doubt that somebody just, that guy seems like half a bubble off. I'm going to go see. And it makes you wonder, like, how many leads do they chase down? And they're like, no, this person's useless. I guess that's a good point. And then they find this guy, right? And yeah. Yeah. <sighs> And with Fabian, too, okay, I will actually say, when he, at the end, when he presents his history, I was there the day Horus threw the Emperor, I groaned out loud. Okay, see, and here I wrote, that was a great nod to Dan Abnett. I did not like that. I felt it was just a little too on the nose for me. But Fabian, Nara, like... Okay, so Fabian, I think we all know he's going to become a historian for him, and he's going to go on to do great things. Which maybe. we knew Goleman had from Dark Imperium. But what about Nara? Like, what was the, like? Is she going to be an important no. later, or was this all right? Now let's talk about something else that got dropped like a hot potato: the fleet sabotage. The one that was early on, right? Yes. They show what, up. They determine they... that it's a plague. They determine that they're trying to hide the plague. So oh, I don't want anyone to okay, know was, how bad it is. I could be like crossing things. But... He goes back. He goes back and tells Gulliman, yeah, it is effed. They are so hosed. You can't be doing like we can't launch them. Okay, great. Anyway. There were so many things where I was like, but to me that was a slight nod to Dark Imperium. Because again, none of that was a shock. I'm, we already know the Death Guard is present, thanks to Missinius. So we, so we know that they were already out and about. Not any, even though uh, Vorx kind of took his group and just did his own thing because fuck Typhus. Or is it Typhon? 
Typhus. Typhus. Okay, I can't remember. Typhon. Like, Typhon was his old name. Right. I couldn't remember which was which, but Typhus is actually a disease, so that might help me help me remember that. Uh, you know, where Typhus was just like, no, we're not going to do that. Screw Mortarian. Pretty much. Well, and yeah, and the fact that okay, we're gonna make our way over there, and technically this is within the five hundred world, so we're giving Grandfather Nurgle something, and I'm doing something for my Primarch. So, yeah, me. Um, but. There were just so many little things like that throughout the book that I was like, okay. Like the only complaint you could have cut Nara's story out of that book. The only thing I complained about the whole thing with that plague was um that officer that basically risked her life to meet Messinius at the door and go over everything with him, and then they got her off the ship. Okay. Exactly. They dropped it like a hot potato. Is that going to come back later? Was this all just... So, one of the things that I always really liked about Horus Rising and was very unfortunate in those first initial books was that Dan Amnett, like, basically grabbed a handful of story seeds and threw them out, hoping that somebody would pick them up and latch onto them, but then they got told to wrap it up because nobody wants to read, like, 50 Horus Heresy books. That would be insane. And a lot of that stuff got dropped. Like, the Lodge concept clearly was not executed in the way that Abnet probably would have hoped it could have been. Part of me wonders if this is Gee Haley doing the same thing, just being like, look at all this stuff that I have seeded the earth with. Go forth. Pick up on something. Maybe Nara's something. Maybe she becomes a saint. Maybe there really is something special about her. Maybe the fleet sabotage. We have to go back and talk about this. A lot of it, though, I'm like, this could have been a lot shorter. Especially the Nara's thing. It could have been so much shorter. Okay, her journey could have been shorter. Absolutely. I I think the paper part was pretty important. Most of the rest of it, I do not. Uh, But I don't think she's going to do anything else because especially when everybody, there's like, what, hundreds of the exact same missive that came from all all these other scribe errants risked their lives to come do it. It's like, yes, there was a point to this. Yes, it was very important, but it doesn't matter now. And that's that's one of the things and it reminded me again of Watchers of the Throne 2 when Jack is first talking to Gulliman and she's talking with him and he kind of goes and she's like oh my god this is how every conversation with you ends. More help more aid, more guidance and I, so I kind of did like that and when she gets to the end and she sees that all of their missives basically say the same thing doesn't matter yeah, what you have is super important just like everybody else's thing. Right. Doesn't matter. It's. It was just kind of this... It was this reiteration that the dark that the Imperium isn't a dark place and everyone needs help and everyone needs guidance. And yeah, you found this, this missive and gosh, that was super important, but God, get in line. And I did like that. Poor, I liked that idea of it, but again... Like, right. That one was a little trying on me. So let's let's talk about Inquisitor MacGuffin. Hmm. Rostov. First off, how did you feel about Rostov as a character? Meh. I he didn't kind of meh on him too. He, I had some questions. I mean, why this order ordo of Xenos has a Xenos with them? That's odd for starters. I can I just say really quickly i did not like her character at all chilch didn't like her she didn't bother me i was just whole time going i don't understand 
understand why she's there. Like, I don't understand what significance she has in this other than this is not typical for Ordo Xenos. And by the way, if your other Inquisitors of your Ordo see this, they're going to report your ass. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just slightly. Um, and I, and I'm actually, well, I guess because he's an Inquisitor. I was a little surprised that like nobody said anything about this, but he's an Inquisitor. So what are you going to do? Exactly. Um, but I, that really drove me crazy. I didn't really, I just didn't like him. He felt really did feel like a plot device. And I think one of my biggest complaints was we don't really get to know Rostov because we follow all of Rostov's chapters through LeCrant's point of view. And LeCrant is, I mean, talk about a fish out of water. The guy has no yeah. idea what's going on. He has no idea who these people are. He's mostly fixated on Chilch because that's Weird. understandably like the weirdest thing. Right. The Inquisitor was just like almost too much like i can focus on this weird ass xenos the the inquisitor i'll come back to that later so like you really didn't get a sense of where he gets this blackstone device and how he knew about all of this like it you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants following him doing all this stuff and then he just has the magical macguffin on his hands and which cool. i have quest questions about that as well it's like how did you know you're gonna need something like that much less where you got it. Also, what is someone in the Order of Xenos doing hunting down demons? That's so, way okay. out of your pay grade, bro. Oh, my God. Now, now, you could argue that these guys don't trust anyone. So it's possible that, like, I guess there was a lot that you had to infer. Maybe he ran into he ran into some Necrons. He knows a lot about the Necrons because he's Ordo Xenos. He just kind of figured out that, hmm, this is all Necronter technology and this is what's happening and this is how Chaos is using this and I can't trust any of those Ordo Hereticus or Ordo Malios people. So, by God, we're going to bootstrap this and do it ourselves. But that was a lot of inference that you just had to make there. And again, because you're following it through LeCrant's point of view. And on one hand, I... I don't have a problem with the fish out of water character leading us to the Inquisition because it is kind of a whirlwind adventure, right? right? Like mm -hmm. you're on a planet and then you almost get killed by a world eater. And then suddenly you're with an Inquisitor and you have a, he has a pet Xenos and what is going on here? Oh, and by the way, uh, you're not leaving his side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the way, <laughs> indentured servitude. Um, it was all just very weird. Yeah. And I, I didn't really get the sense of him as a character. I I know enough, like I know about the enough about the Necrons and everything that was going on that I was like, okay, I can sort of follow what he's doing, but I don't understand the. I understand what he's doing and I understand why he's doing it. What I do not understand <laughs> is why him. Fucking, how did he know to do this? Right. When did all this like? Ah! I was. I found it really frustrating. Yeah. And it really just kind of did feel like a MacGuffin. Well, I wonder if some of that gets explained in the short story that was in the end of our collector's edition. It might, but you guys, I got to the end of the book and was like, nope. I didn't read it either. I was just I happy will eventually. I was finished. I, just was, I was happy that I finished the book. Same. And I got to the end of the book, and at first I was like, I have so, like. I actually texted you and I was like, I have so many pages left in this book. And then I read a little bit and it was like, oh, I only had 10 pages left. There's another short story at the end. Nope. I actually haven't retouched this book. Other 
then to look at the amazing character art for the uh, the baddest bitch in the room. Oh, the drug addict? She Eloise. is. She is a drug addict. But she was amazing. And I loved her. And I thought she was awesome. But, yeah. That's about the only reason I've opened that book again. So... Let me ask this. We expressed concern before, and I know we've kind of touched on this. Did this make you feel better about it being a prequel? Hell no. Because again, as I said, like in the beginning, how much is are the rest of the books going to be like? Like you said, there's no there's no stakes with Gulliman because we know he survives unless nothing else is about him the rest of the time. But again, it's called Dawn of Fire. That's the name of the series, not just the name of the book. It's the name of the series, and that's his flagship. So we... It should be, he should be, like, one of the central characters throughout. Right, unless he just shows up to be Exposition Man again. Which is possible, but... I mean... I don't know how interested I'm going to be with going through every single battle that they go through in the Adamus crusade before we get to dark imperium a hundred years later where he shows up to ultramar and was just like so you guys have fucked everything up here and we're going to redo this yes i don't know that i need to really see that um we've already seen him visit ball we've already seen him do quite a bit so I guess, and this kind of blends into our, our final question, which was, where does the story go from here? Like, what do we want to see in this hundred year period? And I'm going to go ahead and step on a limb and say, I know, I know it's on Dawn of Fire. I know that's his flagship. I don't want to see anything else with Gulliman. Maybe people under his command, but I don't want to see anything else with Gulliman. I just want something new. Something I Something don't already new. know. And I'm afraid that I'm not going to get that because, again, we've read Dark Imperium. We've gone 100 years into the future. There was a really good wrap-up in the f- first Dark Imperium book of what Gollum and him been doing the last 100 years. Talking yeah. about waging his secret and very slow-key war against the Inquisition. You know, as he's trying to dig into the histories and they're not letting him. So he's creating his right. own people. He's, you know, correcting histories. Like, you guys are not telling this right. And they're like, yes, we are. He's like, no, I kind of lived it. You actually, know? so this is bringing up a good point about mm-hmm. Fabian. I actually wondered that. Like, because when Fabian comes back and he's like, oh, yes, you know, I found the histories of Cinderman. Where? Yeah, I wondered that too. It was interesting. Where did you get that specific story? No because Gollum's like, no. Gollum's like, yeah, I've, I've talked with him. I was like, well, we we know you have talked with him. I mean, but then again, if you've never read any parts of the Horus Heresy, which could have been me a few years ago, you would have no idea who this guy was, which is very similar to if when I originally read um, the Eisenhorn uh, omnibus, because in that is a short story the uh uh the keeler image and it didn't which mean- is gonna bring up my next thing isn't that story told to euphrates keeler i was there the day horus slew the emperor uh no because loken tells it to all the other guys 
And everybody kind of laughs about it. And she specifically seeks him out at the beginning of Horus Rising and is like, I'm heard that you tell a very good story. Was that her, though? Or was that somebody else? I don't think it was I, her. You know what, you guys? I have I read Horus Rising back like in 2007 or 2008. So it's been a really long time. So <laughs> I could be wrong. But when they said send him in, I was like, no, that's not who he was. So, Maybe. I don't know. Can I you? Can. Ooh, wow, she got long arms, you guys. She tall. Okay, I know I got really far away from my mic. Okay, so just give me a minute. <laughs> hold, please. We're I've gonna never play some actually hold. opened this copy. <laughs> That's a beautiful copy, too. Yeah, Jeez. it was from uh, the Black Library Celebration 2019. Nice, it's beautiful. Um, but anyways, my point being that he told that to a bunch of other space marines and i know that he told it to a female a female remembrancer so when he's talking about sentiment i was like how did that get like how mm, and i could be wrong again it's been so long since i read those books and it's possible that they were all sharing stuff i know they were but because there was kind of a group of them it was not her it was not her was it mercedes mercedes the one that had the big, she had like the extension on her skull to record. It was her. That's who he told it to. Right. I didn't think it was. Still not. I, just, I didn't well, think it was Euphrates. Still not Sundaman. So that's that's another reason that I didn't like it. Is I was like, but how did he get all this information? Like we know that the Inquisition has been burying this stuff for, I mean, centuries, millennia. How did he get all this? And now, having said that. I might actually read an entire book about people just having to hunt down this information, like the Keeler image. Like maybe they go down because they get this, they get word, there's a Keeler image, they go and they find it, they bring it to Gulliman. Like it would be really kind of interesting because that would almost turn into more of like a heist book because it would be all these agents of Gulliman having to go and heist this stuff away from Inquisitors. So what I imagined it being was obviously these, um, his... And I'm going to try to pronounce how they have it. But these, these historians, um, I don't believe they had them going out and looking for this information. They obviously, Gulliman had already had his own agents out there getting as much information but, but as those, possible. I follow those people. But, follow those people in a heartbeat. But, well, right. Oh, 100%. Um, I don't remember the spy he had the one with the really long neck who was spying on Frater Matthew. I don't remember how to pronounce her name. It starts with a Y, but he sends her yeah. away somewhere in Dark Imperium. I wouldn't mind anything from you know her. How she got the Letitia Devonatus? That'd be fascinating. How she wrested that away from the Inquisition. But I mean, obviously, Gulliman has been you know harvesting this ever since he woke up and he realized the Inquis Inquisition is just like. You just need to know what we what I tell you. He's like, no, I was kind of there. I was kind of there. Um, so you're not telling it right. Yeah, Horus showed up at Terra with nine devils, and nobody knows where they came from. Those are my brothers. No, they weren't. Like, I can see them. exactly. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. And then him like doing the job of the hut laugh. That doesn't yeah, work. Sorry on me. for you podcast people. We were doing the Jedi mind trick. The Jedi mind trick. Now that doesn't really work on him. No. Um, he would be impervious to the Jedi mind trick. Uh, yeah, you think? 
I I guess I just I would love to see that like this heist, yeah. this mind heist of information. That'd be kind of cool. With, like some of his characters, especially that girl. But again, I don't really care about many of the battles because they I matter. They don't uh, because we've already got well. To they Dark do Imperium. and they don't. Yeah. <laughs> so like they they matter in that. Well, that's kind of interesting and bad. There were a lot of battles, but like. So again, starting with Dark Imperium, that's when they divide up the unnumbered sons. I'm fine with knowing that he got all this Primaris together and he called the, the unnumbered sons, but now we're at a point, it's time to split them up and send them on to their different chapters. I don't need to know how they got to that point. Bingo. I, again... I am so willing to take you at face value. Well, you know, they had all these battles and they had to learn a lot and they had to work together and then uh, they separated them out. It was kind of sad, but then they went on to their new chapters and everything was great. Cool. Except for that one guy that was sent to the Nova Marines. <laughs> okay, well, this was the Nova Marines. Like, sorry, buddy. But, like, Ugh. I... You can just tell me that. I don't really need to see it. And I don't... And again, it's because I don't really like prequels. And you know what I think the biggest problem with this is? All of it. The Dark Imperium was so interesting. So interesting. You have the Death Guard taking over Ultramar. Like, they're marching on there. You had Gulliman have a face-off with his brother, with Mortarion. It was Primarch versus Primarch. There was all the subterfuge. There's... A Alpha Legion agent in his midst with Frater with Freighter Ma Freighter Matthew. <laughs> Go back to Latin. Um, all these people, and we're going back to prequels to talk about what happened 180, 90 years ago. I don't care. Like, can you imagine? Just imagine for a second with Star Wars, if. You watched, like, the first, like, 30 minutes of Star Wars, and then they jumped ahead to Luke, I am your father, and then they were like, actually, though, let's go back to episode two. Talk a little bit about that. No! <laughs> you just, you just had a showdown between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker, and now you want to go back and tell me about what happened to Darth Vader as a child? That's a very good way of explaining putting it you know one thing i kept coming to my forefront is when i read the first heretic and there's an intro by uh, adb in there where he talks about how he never wanted he never wanted the black library to actually write out the horus heresy because as he said you know star wars was great we don't need to know how they got to that point um but he said dan abnett changed his mind now, I think the reason why it worked for the Horus Heresy, not the whole thing, but I think it worked for like the main stories is because the Horus Heresy, my God, it's like the New Testament of the Bible. It's, you know, it's this major part of history that has framed how, how they are. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, 100 years, but from the time that Gullman woke up to Dark Imperium is not an important part of history that needs to be explored. Well, and I think using leaning off the Horus Heresy, I would have thought they had learned their lesson because Horus becomes War Master. 
gets revealed that he's a traitor. Garo gets back to Earth, to Terra, to let them know. All this stuff happens. But did we mention this one thing that happened like four years ago? And now a seven-year period is being investigated in 54 books and they keep jumping through time, right? So that they can cover every single month. And again, I can't wait for them to reveal what was eaten at Doran's birthday party. Angron had the salad. He was not a fan. <laughs> I just can't wait for this to happen. And I would have thought they would have learned. Again, as you said, it's not 10,000 millennia. Like they could have... You know, I don't even know. I don't even know. Really, again, you progress the story. Gulliman's awake. The Death Guard is up to some shit. I don't... I don't really care how this all got started. Again, I felt like Dark Imperium told a good synopsis. It did. And Dark Imperium was just... I, I, I jokingly will say it's flawless, but kind of is it's got everything i mean at the time i read it when they talked about so it's 100 years later i was kind of like but but wait and this is because i'm a gulliman fangirl i was like but i want to know what he did well now that i'm learning i don't care i really don't because the way dark imperium had set up that's what i want i want so it's your fault Interesting. I never wrote an article about it because honestly, that's how I felt at the very beginning. I was like, what happened in that first hundred years? But the more I was reading, I was also thinking, you know what? The way that these space marines and much less primarchs view time, hundred years is really not that much. Nothing for it's them. Just, it's just kind of crazy, especially when you read, um, you know, Watchers of the Throne and Vaults of Terra and you think about the characters that are in it, you're they're most likely not alive anymore at the start of Dark Imperium. I mean, they could be with lots of rejuvenate treatments and maybe lots of warp travel, but at the same time, but we know that Krell's not going anywhere because he's uh, the Ordo Ordo Hereticus, so he's staying there in Terra hunting out witches, so he's not you know, he's probably not still alive. He's also already ancient Right. I mean, yeah, he was dying. He was dying, too, I think. Wasn't he sick? Yeah, he's dying. He was. Yeah, so which actually would be kind of interesting if all of a sudden in Dark Imperium, um, what's her face? His interrogator. She's a badass. Like, if she showed up and she's the Inquisitor now, that would be kind of interesting. But to your point. But, like, Jack? No. No, there's no way she's still alive. Who Who knows about these High Lords? Maybe through rejuvenate treatment, in which but case she was, she's going to be. Okay, she wasn't as old as her master, but she was right. not as. She was, she was not a spring chicken. She was not middle aged either. She was. She had already gone through rejuvenate treatment. Uh, she talked about it, but. So from that perspective, okay, like, that was kind of sad for me when I kind of realized after reading, you know, Watchers of the Throne. You know, I know Valerian is mu- very much still alive, and most likely so is Leia. Mm-hmm. But I don't care enough to read what happened in that 100 years. Right. I don't really either. And I. Because I'm more than happy watching how things play out through reading Chris Rates Watchers of the Throne. How Tara, I guess, comes under some sort of order uh, through that. 
I am more than fine with that. I don't need anything else. I don't need to know about all the you know nuances of Gulliman, you know, bringing together this army. Did I chuckle a little bit when they talked about the new Admiral of the Navy? Yes, because if you've read Watchers of the Throne, you already know what happened there. Yes. Again, it was kind of wink wink stuff where you're like, but also we already knew. We already knew. We did. So I guess if they can cover new ground, I'd be interested in another book. But if they could do like this heist of all this history, new information new information and i and you have to figure out a way to make the stakes semi-high okay i'm going involving to, tara and gulliman i'm going to change this because when i say new information i don't mean battle for the abyss new information i don't mean new information but you know this one battle this one time that didn't even matter in anything in the end well, that's what I'm saying. Like, you have to make the stakes. Like, you can't make them totally meaningless. Like, you have to find something that's high. But on the other hand, it can't be Terra or Gulliman high because everything's fine. We know this. Right. Yeah. I'm with you. Well, so, however. however okay, okay. You know what? I will say this. If the next books are Gulliman introducing the Primaris to the other chapters... That could be interesting. That could be interesting. I actually wouldn't mind seeing him drop off with the Dark Angels. So Behold! I... <laughs> My things! <laughs> now your things! <laughs> so, I don't have our next book. I, I do have it in physical copy, but I can't find it, you guys. So I think I'm going to actually have to... That'd be the one. I'm going to have to buy this one again. We are reading Ragnar Blackmane by Aaron Dembski bowden Yes, yeah, a much shorter book. A much shorter book. And, and this will have new information. Boom. So I'm I'm actually pretty excited about that one. So So yeah, I've already read like half half of it. Uh it's good. And I'm so glad we read the Emperor's Gifts before we read this. Right, because it is gonna re- it's gonna deal with some of that stuff. A little bit, yes. Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty excited about it. Um, it'll be interesting to bounce away from the Ultramarines, I think. Plus, and... uh, we get to see more of that uh, weird oath thing between the Space Wolves and Dark Angels. Yeah. So, on that, you want to take us out, Carrie? I suppose that that I will. I can move my mouse at all. My wine. <laughs> I'm a hot mess, you guys. Just. It's been a week. All right. So it's thank you all so, so much. You've listened to the Warhammer 40k book club episode regarding Dawn of Fire, Avenging Sun by the one and only Guy Haley. Be sure to join us for our next book, Ragnar Blackmane by Aaron Dembski bowden We are an unofficial book club and not affiliated with the Black Library or any of its affiliates. You can find both the vidcast and podcast on our website, wh40kbookclub.com. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, give a review, and all those things to the vidcast on YouTube or the podcasts on literally anywhere you can get podcasts. Don't forget, we also have a Patreon where we offer two different tiers of content for your viewing and listening pleasure. You can learn more about that at patreon.com slash wh40kbookclub. And our site also has articles about our adventures in reading other Warhammer 40k books and short stories outside the book club books. So please stay a while. 
and read from a crag. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. of the Warhammer 40k book club is hosted by Jen Bozier and me. Recording and editing of both the vidcast and podcast were done by me. The book club questions and discussion format were done by Jen, and all of our music is by Jingle Punks. The Warhammer 40k book club is a Warhammer LLC production. This is a Voxcast that even he, Cato Sicarius, would approve.